Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Crawford Gribben, professor in the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy, and Politics at Queen's University, Belfast, to talk about his newest book, The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland, out this fall, 2021, with Oxford University Press. Hi, Crawford. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Yana. Thank you for having me today. Oh, it's delightful. So how are you? Actually, where are you? Are you in Ireland? I am in Ireland. Well, technically Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, I teach in Belfast, as you mentioned. And I live yeah. in a little, t- well, just outside a little town, about 20 miles north of that. So um, if you can imagine bucolic rolling green fields um, nurtured by incessant rain, <laughs> you've probably got a pretty good idea of where I live. Excellent. I mean, that's funny because the incessant rain makes me feel like we live in the same country, but I only see brick and brown tile, but yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, it's still wet. Yeah. North, Northern Europe, man. It's, uh, yeah, we, we, we're not here for the weather. Let's just leave it at that, shall we? All right. Um, so are you having, it's a bit of a chaotic fall, but things are going all right. Yeah, it's busy. We're, we're back teaching in person this year, which is really nice. Um, the university's put in place lots of really good measures, I think, to make teaching safe and efficient. And I think by and large, it's passed without any real difficulty. So, so far, so good. What about you? Delightful. Yeah, I'm going to knock wood for you. Um, well, I've had your chaos. So there we go. You're welcome. All right. It has to go somewhere. Yeah, sure. I feel like a, a bit of a magnet as well. All right, so let's talk about you. So you're an historian of early modern religion with a particular interest in what you describe as a Calvinist literary cultures. You published on John Owen and Puritanism, English Puritanism in particular, with and uh, a Scottish connection. And then you have this strain where you in, you're into apocalyptic kind of millennialist thought. Um, so, and then with this book, we see this other kind of another side of your interest. So, I mean, it's religion certainly, but it's a much different book than you're used to. What what brought you to this guy? Yeah, that's that, that's interesting. Um, it is a different kind of project altogether. Um, it's a project. The book is called "The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland," and it really tries to to do that. Tries to cover that breadth. So it begins actually. It begins with the first human habitation of Ireland, approximately eight to ten thousand years ago. No one's exactly sure when, and uh, you know, it's it's looking at the the things that religion did. Generally, maybe religion is not quite the, the right term. Um, in in some of the earlier uh, millennia, the earlier periods, but certainly by the time we come to the early fifth century and the arrival of the first Christian missionaries, um, if that's an appropriate term to use. Then you know from from then on it's a really thinking about what what Christianity did in Ireland for the Irish, uh, how it made them a people in a kind of a way, and then it's also thinking maybe not quite to the same extent, but it's thinking also about what contribution Irish people have made towards the formation of Christianity. So it's it's trying to do both of those things together. So yeah, it's a different kind of project. 
Um, as you say, normally I write about Puritanism or the literary culture of evangelicalism. Um, so this this was just something something different, and it was a lot of fun. I learned a huge amount, discovered I didn't know a huge amount, but that's probably to be expected. And of course, as historians, you know we love that. That's that that's yeah, an opportunity for us, and um, and so that that's the way it developed. This is, um, in some ways, like it's so brave, right? We can, you know, you can do your thing really well. But then when you want to step back and take on this project that's, you know, nothing so much as the whole span of human history in a whole country to maybe, you know, depending on your, you know, um, that's a whole nother adventure, you know, and that's a very brave move. But I feel like, um, you know, it's like when you teach, Western Civ one instead of the you know the Reformation. It's gives you this different focus. See, I can see how you felt that you kind of learned a good deal and grew. And do you think you'll be doing like do you will, will this will we see the reflection? Will we see this in your new work? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, you, you you say it's brave. I mean, other people would say presumptuous. Uh, other people would say. You know, actually dangerous. Uh, you know, <laughs> crazy. One, one, one of the things that one of the things that we're trained to do as historians. Yeah, exactly. All of those things. <laughs> but I mean, one of the things we're we're sort of encouraged to do as historians is is take a field and really almost control it. You know, to 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 really know it well, to contribute to it to the best you can, and and for that to be yours. You know, to be almost kind of possessive about it. Mm-hmm. I've I suppose I I've never really been terribly self disciplined when it came to you know what I was interested in. I've always just been interested in what I'm interested in. And uh, so I, I like to tell my colleagues that when they look at this book, to imagine the footnotes as they would like them to be, uh, rather than as they actually are. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it was a lot of fun reading for it. Um, I, you know, there's no there's no surprises in the book for anyone who has who knows anything about any of these pa- passages of, of time. At least I hope there's no surprises, at least no bad surprises. Um, so hopefully it, it was pitched really as a summary of the, the best available scholarship. And that's really the kind of book it is. It's pulling together what lots of other colleagues have done in the field and just trying to turn it into a coherent narrative all the way through, turn it into a story. Yeah, well, well done. It absolutely does that. And I learned I learned an immense amount, but, you know, I, I, I knew little going in. But so it was wonderful. So one of your stated goals is to recenter religion in Irish history, something you know it is not terribly fashionable right now. Um, and I'm curious about like how important this was to you as a motivation. And I suppose I'm also just asking more broadly about the ho- historiographical hole you meant to fill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly right, Yana. So it is really intended to sort of fit, uh, or or rather suggest a quite an old fashioned approach to the writing of of history generally, but also Irish history. And I suppose one of the difficulties of these sort of big scale projects in Irish history is that a Irish history is always controversial for lots of obvious reasons, and b when you put religion into Irish historiography, it gets even more controversial again for really obvious reasons. Um, but you know, I still thought there was you know there was something worth doing uh, about that. In a way, the project is trying to think about what a religious history of Ireland could be like that was not denominational. So there's you know there's lots of well, not lots. There's a few. There's been a number of projects over the last couple of centuries where people have tried to write specifically denominational histories of Christianity in Ireland, Catholicism, obviously, but even smaller groups like Presbyterianism. They've they've got their their, their kind of court historians who will offer a, a sort of official or a semi-official narrative of how 
everything that happens in the 5th, 6th, 7th century leads logically to their own denomination. And I suppose I was trying to do something a bit different from that. I was trying to think about um, Christianity in the broadest sense of that, you know, to think about multiple traditions, to think about how those traditions interact with one another, and to take to take their claims seriously, but not not their theological claims. Most of my work up to now has been much more interested in theology than this book is. This book's much more interested in what religion does or what people make religion do, what, what religion does for people. And and so, you know, I, I talk in this book much more about um, the formation of national identities, um, religious nationalisms, um, you know, and, and, and things like that. So I suppose it is quite an old-fashioned way of thinking about what history or a national history might look like. But it's also trying to do something new in that it's trying to suggest a different way of approaching that topic from merely a denominational way. Um, yeah, and I I found one of the things that was really charming about the book um, was early on, the way you treated religion very fairly and openly. Like you were, there was not a lot of dogma when you're talking about you know, very early on about the conversion and foundations of Christianity in Ireland, you're very clear about like, we don't know what's happening. And this would probably make, you know, like Father Donnelly, who I was on the faculty with me, you know, a few years ago, it might make him very uncomfortable, but you're very inclusive. And I thought that was an excellent choice and reflective of the broader project. Well, I mean, it is trying to be inclusive because I think there's been multiple iterations, I suppose, of Christianity in Ireland, and they've all contributed something. And mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose, speaking personally rather than sort of theoretically, you know, I, I, I'm pretty convinced that these groups often have much more in common with each other than they're prepared to admit. And part of the project was trying to put groups into conversation with one another who maybe wouldn't choose to do so. And actually to suggest that these, even in the most recent period, parallel tracks in history, you know, where people, you know, it's the same in the Netherlands, isn't it? People sort of peer curiously and slightly nervously over these denominational barriers. But actually, you know, they are a little bit like, um, you know, motorways where people are basically heading in the same direction, but there's something Mm -hmm. keeping the various lanes apart. Uh, and I wanted to try and and pull that in. Uh, But also, as I say, really to, to write something that's not, celebratory a lot of the earlier denominational histories have been quite celebratory so i wanted to move away from that and to write mm-hmm. about the difficulties the problems and you know what what goes wrong and of course there's, there's a great deal goes wrong so you know undoubtedly a lot of people will read the book and wonder why when i come to the reformation for example it says so little about the big theological issues that are at stake and I mean, I think that's a valid question, but I suppose that in, in some ways relates to the kind of reformation Ireland has, which is not a very theological reformation. It's much more of a state power, control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it eventually becomes a theological reformation, it's too late. Everyone's already decided where their allegiance is going to lie. Sure, yeah. Well, and I think, um, you know, that just continues this project of demonstrating the dialectic between Irish Christianity and Christianity in Ireland. That, that that was a stupid thing to say, Anna. That doesn't, you know, but the idea that the people like that this the religion is being developed, and you know the 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 process by which it's being developed and how it affects the people who's developing yeah, it. That's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. There's a kind of a circular thing, isn't there? So, yes. when, when, I, when I talk at the beginning about you know how Christianity shapes Irish, how 
the Irish shaped Christianity. That's this kind of very neat binary that doesn't really describe, as you've noticed, the kind of the the circularity yeah. of that. That Christianity is developing as the people it's shaping are developing, but the people who are shaping it are developing at the same time as they're creating new newer and newer versions of Christianity. So both of those things, the wheels are turning, even as they are mm-hmm. sort of intersecting with one another all the way along. It's right. a lot of balls you've got up in the air there. Yeah, it was almost an automobile metaphor, but then I realized <laughs> they were sort of doing a four-wheel drive thing that didn't work. Yeah, yeah no, that's good. Uh, that's solid. It was a good <laughs> metaphor. We'll, we'll keep it. All right. Hey, so the first line of the book in the preface, so very, even before the book really begins, you write, first, first line, Perhaps it is only now, after the collapse of Christian Ireland, that we can begin to recover its history. And you just say it right there, right? It's just how you open the book. And I'm like, ho, 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 hold on <laughs> as I'm reading this. Um, the collapse of Christian Ireland, like, is there news I've I've, I've uh, missed? And it's, I'm, I'm joking, but I mean, kind of not, right? Like, is this a contested point to start the book or are you ta- that you're taking for granted? Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, it, some some. It, it depends what it depends what you think Christian Ireland is, right? So in the okay. book, in the book, I um, I try to to describe this idea of Christian Ireland as a kind of national culture or what's becoming a national culture that's deeply shaped by Christian ethics, morals, values, ideas, imagery, culture, you, you name it. So it's it's really a description of a culture rather than uh, a description of the strength or weakness of individual denominations within it. So, I mean, if you were to look at the most recent census in the Republic of Ireland, it would tell you that 78% of the population still identify as Catholics. That's a huge number by European standards, 78%. But yet, when you look at what's happening on the ground, mass attendance is at an all-time low and declining. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can compare the two papal visits to Ireland, Pope John Paul II in 1979 and Pope Francis in 2018. In 1979, fully one third of the population of the island came out to see Pope John Paul II. And wow. he, he had an open air mass in Phoenix Park, massive park in the centre of Dublin. And it was attended by somewhere in the region of one and a quarter million people. It was the biggest, single biggest event. Can you imagine the stewarding or the queue for the toilets? Wow. But, you know, it was the yeah. single biggest event in the history of the island, as far wow. as we can tell. But you compare that 2018 to the visit of Pope Francis. And the planners for that, you know, really anticipated that there'd be a much, much lower turnout. But if you look at some of the photographs that are taken at the time, you'll see that even though they have set out, uh, met a much, much smaller arena, if you like, in Phoenix Park, there's hardly anybody in it. And when Pope Francis turned up, something like only 100,000 people turned out to wow. see him in Phoenix Park. So you're talking about one-tenth of the, the corresponding number in 1979. So, I mean, and that's our lifetime, right? That's yeah. yeah well, that's yeah. That's, our, that's how long. That's us on yeah, the planet. Yeah, yeah. That's not so long. Yeah, yeah. So you can look at stats like that, um, but you can also look at declining numbers of vocations, uh, men entering the priesthood, and um, the Catholic Church used to in Ireland used yeah. to have I don't know maybe a dozen individual seminaries that were feeding into the the, the priesthood there, and one by one since the nineteen nineties they have shut down. Um, but in a way, they couldn't shut them down fast enough to cope with decreasing demand. There was always more seminary resource available than people willing to take up places on it. Uh, and now there's only one seminary left that's training uh, Irish priests or priests for Ireland. And um, it's in Maynooth. And, you know, I think only nine 
men started the pre the pre priestly formation course this year. It's kind of an exploratory course. So like the likelihood is not even all of those will will enter the into no. the priesthood. So I mean I think that collapse is not too big a it's not too big a, a word. That so you know we're talking there about the kind of internal dynamics within the denomination within the church, mm-hmm. but then you've also got a bigger social space around it, and you know I'm sure um, folk in Europe and the United States are aware of some of the big um, legal changes that have taken place in Ireland mm-hmm. over the last what, maybe five years or so, where the the, the Constitution of the Republic essentially um, forbade abortion, and that that has become legalized on the basis of a referendum um uh, again the constitution had very very tight rules on marriage shaped very much by a catholic ethos divorce was illegal until um when was it the early 1990s so so uh, sorry mid, mid-1980s but but you know within the last couple of years we've all seen the legalization of, of same-sex marriage as well so there's been a huge transformation and the the I think what's really notable about these transformations is they've taken place in the basis of referenda. So it's not legislators in a parliament mm-hmm. making decisions divorced from popular opinion. This is an active reflection of popular opinion. So you kind of you, you put those referenda results alongside declining numbers of vocations, declining attendance at mass. And then you've also got this really curious statistic of 78% of the population identifying as Catholic in the census. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can say, well, it's still a Christian country, 78% still a lot of people. Of course it is. Huge proportion. And then you sort of think, on the other hand, well, how does this work out? You know, is this is this really a, a culture that's been shaped by the values that 78% of the people say they identify with? And it's, it's obviously quite different. Mm-hmm. So, hence collapse, hence decline. I don't think quite death. I don't think it's quite dead yet. There's some really interesting things going on. So, for example, during the last referendum, the, there was two referendums ran simultaneously. Um, one was on marriage, but the, the same referendum uh, included a, uh, another issue, which was about ending the state's prohibition on blasphemy. Now, interestingly, none of the churches campaigned to retain a blasphemy law. And nobody was campaigning to retain a blasphemy law at all. But yet, one third of voters in that referendum turned out to say the blasphemy law should be retained, including 48% of voters in Donegal, which is one of the northern, well, the, the, the northernmost county of Ireland. So 48% of people in one county. But, you know, we're still talking about over half a million people mm-hmm. uh, nationally wanting to retain a law that not even the Catholic Church, not even the most conservative of the Christian denominations was fighting to preserve. So I'm kind of curious, but who are these people and why, why are they doing that? No one suggested it to them. So what does it mean for them? Is it simply a kind of a protest about the, the speed of social change? Or, you know, are we looking at the formation of a kind of a almost underground culture that mm-hmm. is, is worried about the direction of social change and is not yet organised but could be organised if it found the right kind of voices to lead it. I just don't know. We don't have any social science research on it, so it's a it's a curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like to see more work on that. You know, and on some level, it it sounds like just kind of you know I'm a historian of of Italy where everyone is Catholic and the, you know in mass rates, and you know on some level it's about. A culture versus practice and how that fits. But this is striking. You know, you've, you notice like a striking decline 
collapse sounds. I'm, 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 I mean, you convinced me in the book, but I was like, well, hello. I, apparently I missed something. <laughs> well, you've uh, you know, to say so. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I also, I wondered, like, are you being a bit, are you, are you being challenging on purpose? But it, no, it's worked. Um, and at the beginning of this, of this book with this incredible scope, um, Okay, and I want to talk about how you organize the book as well. So you've got these five body chapters, conversions, foundations, reformations, revivals, and troubles, which is basically chronological. Um, but your chapter titles are quite telling. Clever wordsmithing, which I, I, I appreciate as an author as well. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting that you um, you separated conversions and foundations, right, to refer to the process by which Ireland became Christian and then the way Christianity – like develops. Yeah. Um, so what's special that's happening in Ireland that's happening differently there than other places? That's a that's a really interesting question. I mean I suppose one of the things that's that's very that's very different, very different uh, in early fifth century context is that Ireland receives maybe a listener will correct me, Ireland receives what I think is the first missionary activity to go formally beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire, e- even as that empire is shrinking, mm-hmm. and um, so you know the the four the four twenties when Palladius gets sent as the first bishop into Ireland, I think that's the first time that uh, a, an official representative of the church is crossing the the boundaries of the Roman Empire to, to push beyond. So that's very distinct. Uh, I think what what makes that significant well i think that presents a number of challenges first of all the people that he is speaking to are not necessarily literate and um, probably not aware of latin although ireland was certainly on roman trade routes you know there's lots of descriptions of you know shipping and 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 uh, merchant activity and so on but you know t- t- taking the culture as a whole um so here's religion of the book encountering a preliterate non-book orientated culture speaking to them in a language that people don't understand um, coming as representatives of the church which by this stage by the early 5th century has really become quite closely identified with the Roman Empire but the Roman Empire is now in decline so you know, here are these missionaries coming with a book that people maybe are not aware of in a language they can't speak, representing a church in an empire that's shrinking rather than expanding it's, you know, it's, it's quite a big mm-hmm. ask really for, for them to say well listen you know, we're actually emissaries from a deity who's coming to to warn you, because they don't really have a track record of success to point to. Um, <laughs> you know, I think they're really struggling to, to to find some kind of point of contact. So I think that's really distinct. Then, you know, on the back of that, the Irish culture also determines that the church, when it does begin to get established and institutionalized, can't institutionalize in the same way that is normal on the continent, because on the continent, episcopal oversight is very much located in cities and urban centres. And of course, in Ireland, there aren't any. So in Ireland, what happens is monasteries begin to get established at, at critical points, either in proximity to a, a major regional king or on the site, perhaps, of a former a former sacred site that's now being mm-hmm. repurposed for Christian for Christian use. And you know, gradually, a network of these institutions spring up. But one of the things that these institutions allow for is the exchange of culture, exchange of ideas, and influences, and because they're drawing in influences that stretch across the Christian world, the, the the Christian culture that begins to develop in these monasteries is you know is is alluding to cultures from all around the Mediterranean basin. So when 
you know, when tourists typically go to Dublin, look at the Book of Kells, for example, that beautiful, is it 8th or ninth century illuminated manuscript of the Gospels, they often think it has been quintessentially Irish. But it isn't. It's being produced in a, a kind of an ideas factory that draws upon a really broad European Christian heritage. And all of that is sort of being filtered through the institution and then encoded visually on these illuminated books. So, you know, in a way it's kind of ironic but that what we think of as Irish antiquity might actually just be Christian antiquity in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we think of it as Irish yeah. is, I think, part of the argument of the book that that Christianity really shapes what that what the image of Irishness eventually becomes. Yeah. Well, when you think about how we do history and what 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 kind of artifact makes it into our conception of history, right? So literate the books count right much yeah. more and they're they we as historians can make so much more sense of them than we can of rocks yes. or right yep so yep <laughs> because I mean, and, I mean, this, this, this is part of the challenge though because when we go back previous to the arrival of first christians in ireland we're going we're going into prehistory so the arrival of the first christian missionaries really marks the transition point between prehistory and history because we mm-hmm. begin to get a documentary record so it's just as you said before that we are actually looking at rocks standing stones or bog bodies you know these bodies that they dig up uh, of course not so far from you as well um but but you know he, here in ireland there's a lot of them they dig them up they try and interpret them but you know we're we're really left guessing i don't want to be too hard my archaeological colleagues but you know we are left making educated guesses uh, mm-hmm. at what a lot of this activity represents no and as you note, i mean you note it but we all know it that there's no um is we you don't come at that from nowhere right your your rocks are going to tell you what that you want them to tell you and there's a long history of doing national you know there's a long past of doing national histories uh for for a purpose, yeah, right? Yeah. To, to come up with a past that makes sense to us. Yeah. And but. there's there's a, a really interesting example of that in the 1920s, 1930s in Ireland when some of the, the most groundbreaking research into Celtic history, in inverted commas, was developed by a team that was led by a member of the Nazi party uh, and informed by all kinds of very questionable theories about eugenics and so on and so on. Yeah. So, you know, even our image of the Celt is is filtered through some very dangerous, very questionable motifs. Yeah, I'm disturbed by that. I have to rethink now. <laughs> when I read that, I, I was bummed out. I'm like, oh man, what was wrong with my Celtic history class? Like, <laughs> yeah, what are we going to have to rethink? Mm. But that's, um, that's one of the things you're able to really uh, kind of point out, like as well, as kind of along the way in your tale is the way that history is manipulated to be useful. Sure, so sure. again, this constant, the conversation between Christianity and Irishness, I guess. Sure. Um, and then um, I, w- I also learned quite a bit in the Reformation's chapter um, and kind of the way the Reformation worked in Ireland is very different than what we're getting here, you know, here in the Netherlands where I live or Italy, of course, you know, where I've studied a great deal. It's the same question. What's going on in Ireland during the Reformations that, isn't happening elsewhere. Yep, and it's um, you, you know it, 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 it's a question that has really haunted histori- historians for the last twenty or thirty years, trying to figure out why does the Irish Reformation fail. It might be one of the very few European examples of a people not following 
the religious decisions of their leaders, or at least of their government. <laughs> their government and their leaders are not necessarily the same people. But um, I mean, I suppose that the, the, the key thing about the Irish Reformation is that it's not it's not a theologically driven Reformation. It's not about ideas. It's really about who's in control of the church. You get a, a, a sense of that in England, don't you? You've got many of the same personnel in the Irish mm-hmm. and in the English Reformations. But in the Irish Reformation, uh, the Irish Reformation continues with much, much slower pace than, than the English Reformation and, and a, a, you know, a completely different category of pace than the Scottish Reformation, which is really accelerated. But in Ireland... There's no, you know, in Germany, for example, Luther gets his New Testament out in German within, what, five years, eight years of nailing up the 95 theses. In Ireland, it takes 150 years for a complete Bible to get published in the Irish language. So, you know, also in England, in Scotland, um, the, the, the parliamentary decisions about Reformation are immediately or almost immediately accompanied by statements of faith for the National Church. But in Ireland, the first statement of faith for the National Church comes out in 1615. So that's 98 years after the Lutheran Reformation begins in Germany. So the, 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 um, the Irish Reformation is incredibly slow. Uh, it's slow to come to any kind of um, theological deliberation. It's slow to provide the basic resources that Protestant churches elsewhere take for granted. Uh, and, you know, it's overlaid with all of these very complex cultural, racial linguistic, political filters that mean that the Reformation in Ireland is never just about religious ideas. It's also about what does it mean to be Irish? It's also about can I trust the government? Uh, It's also about who are these people who've taken my land away from me and will I ever get it back? So there's, there's all of these themes coming together that make the choice to become Protestant extremely unlikely. And it's I think a quote in the book, there's a statistic or there's some kind of census activity done at the start of the 17th century where um, the the people who do this in Dublin Castle work out that in the previous three generations, somewhere in the region of 105 Irish-born Catholics have become Protestant and less than a dozen of them are communicant members of the Reformed Church of Ireland. So, you know, when we say... When we say the Reformation fails in Ireland, it fails at a fundamental level. Hardly any Catholics are persuaded to change their religion. Mm-hmm. However, there are a lot of Protestants, but where have they come from? Well, they've typically come from Scotland or, or Northern England, and they occupy distinct regions of the island. Um, as they have occupied those parts of the island, they have also um, introduced um, or, or, or have been part of the introduction of a, a very difficult set of cultural and economic realities, which mean over the course of the 17th century, Irish Catholic, Catholic land ownership declines from, I don't know, 60, 70% down to 5% at the start of the 18th century. So, you know, you take all that together and, you know, you can you can realise that the Reformation is a kind of a cultural revolution, but it's a cultural revolution imposed upon a people rather than arising spontaneously out of their own convictions, their own free religious choices. Which is fairly sobering. And then we see that, um, I mean, really really solidified and codified in 1922. Yeah, exactly. So in 1922, you've got the, the codification of two streams of identity, of religious and national identity that evolved in the 19th century. Protestants increasingly identifying with the British state, and Catholics increasingly identifying with the Irish nation. In 1922, 
after maybe 15 years of increasing pressure in which Ireland is really on the brink of civil war until the First World War breaks out. And then civil war actually does break out after the First World War. Uh, you know, you've got the formation of two different jurisdictions, very different religious national politics, two competing religious nationalisms, Northern Ireland, two thirds Protestant, one third Catholic, but definitely the institutions of Northern Ireland definitely seeing themselves as being for a Protestant people. And then south of the border, you've got the Free State, which becomes the Republic in 1949, uh, very much seeing itself as a Catholic state for a Catholic people. And the percentage of Protestants declines and declines until it reaches about 3% of the population. So in 1961, uh, the census recorded the highest ever number of Catholics in Ireland. But from 1922 to 1961, the number of Catholics had only increased. So Ireland actually becomes an increasingly Catholic nation over the course of the 20th century. So when lots of other European nations are modernising, the Republic of Ireland is going in completely the opposite direction. It's it's really copper, fascinate, copper fastening the, um, the Catholic ethos of state and society. And there's lots of moments of tension uh, and, and difficulty. But while the northern jurisdiction has, has real problems, its problems are balancing up a, a, a big, sizable uh, religious cultural minority that still has power. Whereas in the Republic, the Protestant population declines and declines and declines until, as I say, it hits rock bottom around 3%. And by that point, you know, the, the, the two states have really taken on very different kinds of views. And I suppose that really takes us to the end of the, the, the 20th century, the 1990s, when secularization really kicks in hard in the Republic. And you have a kind of a sudden onset secularization in which all of the social changes that have taken a century in Europe are accelerated mm-hmm. to take place within a single generation, which for people living through that, for traditionally minded Catholic people, let's say, living through that, that's you know a very, very foundationally difficult thing to experience for all that it provides liberation and you know different kinds of hope and expectation for those who see the world differently to they do. In Northern Ireland, um, secularisation comes much slower. It comes in the aftermath of the peace process at the end of the mm-hmm. Troubles. Uh, that 30 year period of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland uh, but it's heading in the same direction and in some ways Northern Irish society is now struggling to catch up so if in the middle of the 20th century Northern Ireland was the slightly more progressive version uh, or the slightly more progressive cousin of the Republic now that is really flipped and the Republic is one of the most progressive nations in Europe and Northern Ireland would now I think be seen by a lot of people as being one of the most conservative though i think that is also changing and changing uh, quite fast so what i mean if we have if we see like a secular northern ireland and a secular republic are we going to continue to see i mean will there be two noticeably different irelands i think that's the big question the book finishes with you know if 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 ireland north and south becomes post-christian that means that the old religious nationalisms no longer serve so is there is there still a case for partition? You know, the, the, the unionist argument was always based on the mantra, home rule is Rome rule. Well, what if Rome, Rome rule is not a prospect anymore? You know, there's, there's a few countries in Europe less likely to have Catholic influence the government than the Republic of Ireland now. So what's the rationale for, for, yeah. for you know, for, for partition, but equally, you know, that's a problem for the South as well, because the South is now this incredibly progressive culture and really I think takes pride in its progressive qualities and it looks I think with some 
faint you know, perplexity, perhaps even disdain upon these people north of the border who, you know, still believe these things that we used to believe. But that was like, that was like in 1993. <laughs> the world has moved on so much since then. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, you know, as we know, it's, we know it's never just religion, right? Like, it's never just your confession, is it? No, but I suppose religion provides a really useful vocabulary for, not, not to be all kind of Marxist about it, but I think this is true. Religion does provide a really useful vocabulary for talking about virtually everything. And yeah. so, you know, you might not be, you know, I, I, well, that was my point. That was the point I was going yeah. to make. So I'll stop there. <laughs> Well done, though. You made it. Um, all right. We have taken, we've gotten a little bit over our allotted time. So I've just got the one more question. What are you working on now? Uh, well, uh, at the minute, I'm, um, I'm, I need to start uh, <laughs> a, a project on an Irish theologian called J.N. Darby, um, who was the founder of a group called the Plymouth Brethren. So uh, no one has heard of him, but Don Akinson, who's one of the premier Irish historians, says that J.N. Darby is the fourth most important Protestant theologian ever. All right. I, I want to check that he's definitely the fourth and not the <laughs> third and a half or the fifth. I, I want to be sure no, that no. that's absolutely correct. Yeah, you can't just running around saying you're the fourth most. <laughs> I won't do it. <laughs> so fantastic. Uh, that sounds very interesting. I, this is uh, the second time in as many days the Plymouth Brethren has come up. So I think it's probably time so? for something, you know, maybe I need to... Take a look at this. We should talk about that. Yeah. It might be a sign, Anna. <laughs> that might be a sign. That could be my, my like, what what is it I do next? <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah, apparently, you know, we can just, like, go be brave and bold and try to study some wild new thing. Um, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. I don't want to take any more of your time, so I'm going to let you go, but this has been absolutely enjoyable. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jan. I really appreciate your time. All right. And I will talk again about the Plymouth Plym 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 Brethren. <laughs>